Time is a funny concept when it comes to federal technology initiatives. There's never enough time to do this or fix everything. This initiative will need more time to show results. For that cybersecurity gambit, time is not on our side. In his weekly reporter's notebook, executive editor Jason Miller writes about two initiatives, the 21st Century IDEA Act and the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions Contract, EIS program, where time continues to be fungible and progress is measured in years. Jason joins me now to talk about the tick-tocking clock in federal executives' minds. Jason, let's start with why these particular initiatives underscore this whole time challenge. It's so interesting, Tom, when you think about how much we talk about deadlines and, and this executive order and that law, 60 days to do that and 90 days to do this. And then here we are when we looked at these two big initiatives, both now pushing five, six years since they were launched. And we're still talking about them, number one, but two, the time period around them is either growing or shrinking, depends on where you sit. For instance, IDEA Act, something that President Trump signed in the end of 2018. Uh, it's, it's part of the NDAA bill. We've been waiting for guidance for a long time. It's finally coming. EIS, something started in 2017. Agencies were told, you have this deadline, you have that deadline, now you have this deadline. The deadline kept moving, and now eight agencies have even a longer deadline. So this just got me thinking how when we talk about time in the federal technology sector, it's not measured in the same way that maybe you and I measure it in the sense of like, oh, well, I don't have time to write that story or I don't have time to finish that project. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll yeah. do it tomorrow. Tomorrow just seems to keep coming. And, of course, the EIS contract is kind of the front of a wave front that was overlapped by networks, which itself was pushed ahead by FTS 2000, which itself was pushed ahead by FTS and so on, <laughs> by, by Alexander Graham Bell. So That's the timeline of the <laughs> right. history of the telecommunications challenges agencies have had. So on the IDEA Act, then, people are just waiting for what they have to do because the rulemaking is taking so long. It's not even rulemaking. It's, it's just guidance. Or policy guidance. Policy guidance, exactly, from the Office of Management and Budget. In, f- in fact, Federal Chief of Information Claire Martirana talked about this earlier this month at the IT Vendor Management Summit, where she said a lot of agencies have moved out on the IDEA Act. And if you remember, Tom, this was the idea of making federal websites better, more secure, but also more usable for citizens, something that a lot of agencies are doing. But she said other agencies are waiting for more deliberate guidance, really, to start, as she says, the gears of government forward. It basically will be a 10-year roadmap for digital transformation. Much of this is, as I like to say, it's motherhood and apple pie. It's all those good things that we all know have to happen, but it's really deliberate, thoughtful, and achievable for our government to execute on the 21st century idea. Federal CIO Claire Monterana speaking at the recent ITVMO conference. And, and really what she's saying there, Tom, is we know we have to get it out. We know it's coming it's taken a long time, but we're not just sitting still. And it, you know, when I went back to look at it, there's two reasons why it's taken so long. Again, why the timeline has been so long. Part of it is OMB's fault. They just haven't done it. Part of it, you can say it's the pandemic. Other priorities got higher. Cybersecurity was, was a much higher priority than the IDEA Act. And then some of this goes back to Congress. Yeah, they passed the law, but they haven't really done much since then. There's been no hearings. There's been one letter that I could find. Uh, Jerry Connolly, the congressman from Virginia, threatened to add the IDEA Act to the FITARA, the Federal IT Acquisition sure, yeah. Reform Act scorecard. That's a potent threat. <laughs> he never did. Uh, and here we are in 2023, haven't even had a FITARA scorecard yet because the sure. chairwoman of the committee, Nancy Mace, is not a, necessarily a big fan of it. So, again, there's a lot of reasons why there's been a delay, but now it's time and makes you rethink about why things take so long in government. 
And let's talk about the EIS telecommunications contract. Interestingly, do you know how many federal agencies have disabled and tossed out their desk phones in the meantime? But nevertheless, you got to talk some way. Why has EIS just not taken on the momentum everyone hoped for it? I think there's several reasons why. I think, you know, there's about 122 of 222 agencies, tribal organizations, and others who actually have made the full transition. But a lot of the big agencies, the CFO Act agencies, have not. And what GSA basically said is, listen, we understand why this takes a long time. We understand there's a cost involved here. We understand the challenges. We are doing everything we can to make this go faster. But GSA has never had the hammer to say, do it or else. And and they can threaten them that we're going to turn you off. But let's be in reality, you really just can't turn off the Commerce Department or the Justice Department. So GSA approved two extra years instead of deadline of May 2024. Now the eight agencies have May 2026 as their deadline. We reported on two agencies back in December, Justice and Homeland Security Departments as receiving that extra time. Now we've learned that there are six other agencies, Transportation, Commerce, and Agriculture, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, the Government Accountability Office – you can insert your irony there, Tom. Yes. And the U.S. courts all need those extra two years. And there's no one reason why they need more time to get off of it. And GSA you know, said we've already proven an extension for, for 82 other agencies. So there's a lot of effort, a lot of time that's needed. Laura Stanton, the GSA's assistant commissioner for the IT category in the Federal Acquisition Service, wrote in August 10th blog post about this extension. But she also said, listen, we're working with agencies to do everything we can to get them on the right path. Again, we went from these tight deadlines, assumingly tight deadlines, to now a little more time. And now we're going to give you even more time for a specific set of agencies. And I think part of the problem for EIS is that the agencies keep getting urged, don't just buy the same old service you've been using, whatever it might be wave division multiplexing or whatever, get with some new protocol. But that's that's a heavy lift for agencies. And if things are working and the bits are getting across from one point to the other, you know, they've got other priorities like cyber and user experience. I think you're absolutely right that there's a big push to use EIS to modernize the infrastructure, to take advantage of software-defined networking and voice over IP and other current and emerging technologies. I think where the challenge is, is a lot of agencies said, you know what? We're just going to get off networks, get on EIS with like for like, and then we'll start to modernize. Remember, Tom, this is a 10-year contract. There's plenty of time for agencies, and I think GSA has been talking about this for a while, talking about them to – you have time to continue to evolve your use of EIS. But the issue is getting them even just onto EIS, and that is what's why several agencies need two extra years. Yeah, and also, you know, agencies have lots of components, and especially in a place like agriculture or transportation, treasury – the big components have their own rhythms and their own concerns and their own CIOs. So it's very hard to get a whole department to switch in some manner. And I think that's the exact issue with the IDEA Act as well, just to tag back to that. What OMB is trying to do is say, we realize this will take you some time to get done. We realize there's complications. So there have actually are encouraging agencies to apply for the Technology Modernization Fund to get some of that extra funding, money that maybe was not available for EIS, to say, hey, For these two areas, website accessibility and digital forms, here's a pilot we're going to test out with some templates. 
that you can kind of pre-populate and then in, improve upon to submit your proposal. They've actually set a deadline of September 22nd for those initial round of proposals. And as OMB said and TMF board said, we will continue to accept proposals, but the funding is limited. One thing they didn't say is how much funding they're setting aside. If you remember from last uh, June 2022, they said we're going to have $100 million for customer experience, CX proposals. They didn't quite go as far for Idea Act proposals. It would have been nice if they said we're going to put out there, you pick the dollar amount, Tom, 50 million, 75 million, whatever it is. Looking at GSA's budget request for 2024, they expected to have about $400 million left in the TMF for 2024. So there's definitely funding there. If there's funding, there's always time to get it. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And be sure to check out his reporter's notebook at federalnewsnetwork.com online now. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage, it's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. 
but it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They're the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this, and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's, it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And 
it's it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. That's just mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.